Actually, I was actually looking for my real father, who had left when I was about 10 years old and found him in Houston, Texas. And uh, I went looking for him thinking that if I could find my father, that would put all the pieces of my life together. When I got there, I realized that wasn't it. It was great to see him, but it was really that my heavenly father was looking for me. And through that process, I was able to lead my father, my biological father, my stepfather who was an atheist and alcoholic, very abusive growing up, and my mother all to the Lord. And they're all in heaven now. No, I didn't kill them right after I said, got them led in the Lord. But I was actually born out of wedlock um, in Japan. My mother was Japanese, and my father was in the U.S. military at the time. He had been in the tail end of World War II, then during the Korean War became what was called underwater demolition frogmen, which was the, the foundation group that started the Navy SEALs, and then he became a Navy SEAL during the Vietnam War. Wedlock, and at the age of th uh, three, he came back and married my mom and brought us to California. And uh, then left when I was about 10, and my mom married my stepfather, who was also in the U.S. military. So during high school, we got stationed to Japan. I went to high school in Japan. But I, when I went one time to the Coronado Amphibious Base, for the Naval Amphibious Base, where all the Navy SEALs were training, and my biological father was, a, a, said, a Navy SEAL at the time, um, he was going to teach me how to swim. And I remember going, all excited to go with my dad, go to the amphibious base there in Coronado near San Diego. We get there and all the Navy SEALs and everybody else is in the diving tanks and they're practicing. He gave me the authentic uh, Navy SEAL scuba gear and it was like, a, it was a great thing. The fins, the mask, everything. But I recognized something when he jumped into the pool and he could swim for hours. It was like natural to him because he'd been trained to do that like a fish. And I stood there looking into the water and all of a sudden, fear gripped me. Not just because of the water. I, I should be able to trust my dad, but he had been drinking. He got smell it all over him. I had faith in the fact that he could swim for himself, but I didn't have trust in him that I could jump in the water and he would be able to take care of me. That day, I did not jump in the water. And to this day, I can't tread water, except for when I go to the Dead Sea in, in Israel. You can't sink there. But... I can swim from one side of the pool to the next. I taught myself how to swim, but I've never learned how to tread water. And that moment, there was a broken trust. And we find in our generation and in this, in this generation that you're in, there is many who maybe you have a, a healthy relationship with your parents or with your father, but because we're in a generation that has been called the fatherless generation or the orphan generation, we live in a culture that does not understand the love of our fathers or our parents. So how then do we understand the love of a heavenly father when the, a whole generation is disconnected to an understanding of earthly relationships? So for me, even as a Christian in the early days, I had to come to a revelation that I could trust my heavenly father. I had a faith in Christ, but I had to learn to trust God as my father, which it was hard for me to do because I didn't have anything to relate it to. And I think where we are today with all that's going on around us, uh, last year or two years ago, I wrote an article on the whole earth. I mean, all that is being shaken is being shaken. Every institution is being shaken, Hebrews chapter 12. And the only things that will remain will be those things that have been built on the Lord, 1 Corinthians 3. Anything that is built must be built on the foundations of Christ. And if it's not built on Him, it won't last in our personal lives or even corporately. As a nation, we have cracked foundations. I remember one time my mother 
who had come to live with me as a widow for eight years. And, and, uh, and I remember one day I was walking out the door because I had to go do a conference with Jim Cimbala and Jack Hayford and some others on, on a prayer conference. And so I was going out to go speak at this conference. My mother goes, Dougie. Now, if you understand, she came to live with me. And, uh, but when she came to live with me, it was my house. I paid the mortgage payments. But in my house, she said, Dougie, take your shoes off. In an Asian culture, for those that are Asians, you understand that you take your shoes off when you go in the house. But I'm thinking, this is my house. Mom, we're in America. This is my house. I'm not taking... He goes, I don't care. I change your diaper, you know. <laughs> and so, so I had to take off my shoes in my own house. And then she took over my house, took over the kitchen, the living room, every room, the master bedroom, and I got a little room next to a little study, and that was my part of the house, in my house. Now, the good news was the thermostat was on my side of the house. Because my mother likes it warm. I like it cool. I live in Texas, in Houston, Texas. It's hot. I like it nice and cool. I don't like to sweat. But I could hear in the middle of the night, because I'd turn it down to about 70 degrees, I could hear my mother. Now, you have to understand, at this time, she had like, we, I call it a Jafro, a Japanese Afro. About four foot nothing, and she'd walk it. I could hear her, and she'd go, Dougie, yo, I'm going to get pneumonia, yo. And I could see her walking over to my side of the house and turning it back up to about 77 degrees. And I'd sit there in my bed, this is my house. This is my house. And so one day, I'm walking out the door. She goes, Dougie, you got to do something. I said, what are you talking about, Mom? I'm in a hurry. I've got to go speak at a, at a conference. Dougie, we got crack in the wall. If you don't fix the house, fix foundation, we get more crack in the wall, plumbing go bad, siding go bad, roof go bad, everything go bad if you don't fix foundation. I said, Mom, I'm trying to get spiritual. I'll take care of it. Well, I didn't take care of it. I neglected it. And guess what? Mama was right. It cost me more later because I didn't take care of the foundation that was cracked. We have a major cracked foundation in our country. A cracked foundation that how can we help facilitate and empower and help a new generation that God has called and put his hand upon your generation. This emerging generation is the Joel 2, Acts 2 generation that is spoken about in Scripture. I believe that. In Isaiah, it says that Hezekiah, in Isaiah 37, Hezekiah said, this is a day of trouble and great distress and contempt because the children are ready to come into their destiny or come, in, come forth, but there's no strength to bring them forth. And I believe this generation is the one that God has handpicked, ready to be prepared for the coming of the Lord, for outpouring, revival, for Antioch again, for a great awakening, and yet we haven't left you a good foundation to build on. Now, the good news in Psalm 78, you're not looking and being like the former generation. You're honoring the former generation, but God is empowering you to put your trust in Him. But it's hard to do when you haven't had that trust in other relationships. So we have to build right foundations, get back to building on the right foundation. All that's being shaken is being shaken. We've seen everything we've put our trust in, including the church institution has failed us. Mortgage institutions, banking institutions, uh, auto industry institutions, government institutions, every institution that we had put our trust in has failed us. We've got to get back to putting our trust in God. And it's hard to do when there's been so many broken earthly trusts. I wrote a book back in 1995. It was called The Fatherless Generation. 
and uh, it went out of print, but it was basically originally under the title Prophetic Generation, or it was going to be under a title State of the Church, State of the Nation, State of a Generation. It really was a prophetic word for the emerging generation that when it was out of print, it became more appropriate later than even when I first wrote it. So just about a year or two ago, we rewrote it, updated, added some more stuff to it, and changed the title to Hope for a Fatherless Generation, Rebuilding Our Foundations. Who would like this book as a gift? Right back here, right behind you there. There's another book I wrote that was a sequel to it called Who's Your Daddy Now? The Cry of a Generation in Pursuit of Fathers. Your hand went up real quick. Come on down and get it. <laughs> and this really has my story and a lot of what I've told you last night and today, practical stories, but also it talks about every issue today, including the Middle East, including what's happening in our cities, is a father issue. It goes back. And if we don't release those things and put our hope and trust in God's covenant, then we'll constantly fight each other. And I believe there's a healing. Even the issues in Iran and northern India and throughout the Middle East really goes back to an issue with Abraham, including the descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of Keturah. Keturah was the wife after Sarah and Haggai, and she had more children with Abraham than they did combined. And they became the Persians, and they became the ones that went off into parts of India. So we see it all goes back to cousins, uncles, nephews, nieces. It's all relational, and it's compounded generationally with bitterness. And sometimes the issues of the Middle East, you don't even understand. You go, why don't they just get along? It's not that simple. But it all goes back to a father issue. And I believe that's where we have to put our trust in God, that through Christ Jesus, we have a relationship with the Heavenly Father who Colossians 1.12 says, qualifies us to receive the inheritance as children of the light because of the preeminence of his son, of his love, which is Jesus Christ. That means everyone has an opportunity to find their, their blessing, find their father's inheritance and blessing through Jesus. We all have that opportunity. And in that place at the cross, we no longer hold to our own rights ethnically, nationalities. We come and give ourselves at the cross because of what Christ has done for us. And at that place, he puts us into a family crossing our racial and denominational lines and gives us a, a purpose and a destiny beyond where we were. If you look at the, 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 the experts, I shouldn't be standing here today. You wouldn't be here today. If you look at the experts, oh, you grew up in a dysfunctional home. Oh, you're the, the son of an alcoholic stepdad. Oh, you were, you were a bastard. You were born out of wedlock and you were uh, like, a, like, they call me a salmon Asian. I was born in one place, but grew up in another. And so if I look at all the statistics and all the so-called experts, I shouldn't be standing here. I'd be another statistic. But through the work of the cross and the power of the resurrection, each and every one of us has a purpose and a destiny beyond where we've been. I can't change my past, but the choices I make every day determine my future. And I've got to learn to put my trust in God, even though I've had broken trust on this earth. Because God is not one who would lie. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He is the father of lights where there's no shadow of turning. Every good and perfect gift comes from him. He's the father of compassion and mercy. He's the father who gives us an inheritance. He's the father by which we call him Abba, Papa, Daddy. He sealed us into this, by the spirit of adoption into his family. He is the one that doesn't push us away, but he's the God that says, I have not forgotten my promises over you, as we talked about last night. 
If I begin to change my thinking and begin to put my thinking in him and not my thinking on my experiences or my past, and then I can begin to put my trust in him, he will give me a destiny and a purpose beyond what I could ever think or imagine. Acts 26 is a beautiful picture of, of all of us have had our Saul moments. Paul was relating to when he was Saul, who had been the persecutor of the church. He was doing everything in the name of religion, doing it all right, but he, he was going an honest animal, and all of a sudden Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, all of a sudden knocks him off of that animal and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Can you imagine? Oh, my goodness. And in the presence of, of Jesus at that moment, he says, Saul, I have revealed myself to you with this purpose. The moment of the revelation of who Jesus is in our lives, we all get a purpose. There's a moment in our life we can look back to where we had this revelation, our eyes were open, and we got the revelation of the work of the cross and the power of the resurrection. And at that moment, we have a purpose beyond what we could have ever thought or imagined. All the training, all the education, all the experiences, all that were just a preparatory moment for a life message at that moment, where all of a sudden revelation comes to what our real purpose is. And Jesus says to Saul, I reveal myself to you with this purpose, to be a minister and a witness of the things you have seen and the things you have not yet seen. We're all called to be ministers first and foremost of reconciliation. Because we who were separated from God because of our sin, that Jesus came to be the man who gave his life to us that we might become a new man or new creature in Christ and corporately become one new man, Ephesians 2. So we're to be ministers of reconciliation because of one man's sin, Adam, we need to be reconciled. And so we are reconciled through the man, Jesus, the son of the living God, that we become a corporate new man and become an example to those around us who are all looking. They're all multitudes in the valley of decision today. There are a lot of empty vessels out there that are looking for hope. And though we think we have not much to offer, we have more to offer because we have and are part of the kingdom of God than those who have not, do not have the kingdom of God. And though we think we have much, we have more than most. We have more than enough, and I'm going to talk about that in a moment. So we are called to be ministers of reconciliation, peacemakers. And secondly, we're called to be witnesses. The Bible speaks of true witnesses and false witnesses. But a true witness, Proverbs 14.25 says, a true witness rescues lives, or in some translations says, saves souls. So in other words, we are to help rescue lives that are perishing and save souls. How do we do that? We can't do that, but by our example, let, as we said last night, let Christ's light shine through us in such a way that it draws others close to him, not to us, because it's not about me. I remember one time in 1989, I was going through a great difficulty. And... Uh, and I, I just basically asked God to kill me. I'd already been traveling, ministering all over the world. I curled up in a fetal position in my office and said, I'm just sick and tired of speaking to a bunch of spiritually fat Christians in America. Because I used to be in the fitness business, no pain, no gain. Now I say, oh God, make it hurt so good, you know. And, and then I began to, and we used to call it what adipose tissue is wasted energy. Fat is just wasted adipose tissue or energy. It's not going, it's not, less calories are going out than is coming in. 
And so I said, Lord, we have spiritual adipose tissue. We are spiritually fat in America. We have Bibles in every translation. We have concordances of Bible schools and cemeteries, I mean seminaries. We have, we have all these different things that we have all this knowledge and education, and we've not turned our world upside down. So I begged God. I said, God, either take me to people that are really hungry or take me home to be with you. I didn't want to preach. I didn't want to talk to anybody. And I found myself in January of 1990 with a group of Vietnam veterans who wanted to go back and, and bring help and hope in a polio orphanage and build, build medical clinics in Vietnam. Many wanted to go back and visit where their friends had been killed. They had survivor's guilt because they survived Vietnam War while their friends were killed. And as a result, they turned into alcoholics or drug issues or they had bad marriages because they could not deal with the past. And so I went as a chaplain to help them, and they went, and we did some humanitarian work while we were there. They visited locations where their friends had been killed, and, uh, and then God supernaturally connected me to some people from the underground church. I went into a meeting of 125 pastors who had been fasting and praying for over two weeks in a room. No air conditioning. It was hot. In a room. No furniture. No seats to sit in. They've been fasting and praying for over two weeks, some three weeks, for God to bring a word of encouragement from the outside as a sign from God that the Holy Spirit would move in their country again. Because when communism came, they said, you can no longer talk about the second coming of Christ because communism is here. You can no longer talk about the power of the Holy Spirit because your power comes through communism. And they were, they were proud of their Marxist connections. And so they had been fasting and praying, and I don't know why they picked on me, I guess because I was the only guy that looked Amerasian or something, and they, four teenagers came up to me, and they picked four of us. They said, are you Christians? Yes. Are you Americans? Yes. You, 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 you. Can we meet you tomorrow, pick you up, we take you to meeting? And I was thinking, wow, we're going to meet the underground church. The next day, with secret police following us everywhere back then, we had backpacks loaded down. I get on the back of a motor scooter, and they take us four different directions. I'm going, oh, my goodness, I've been kidnapped. <laughs> and I'm on the back of this motor scooter. I'm saying, excuse me, where are we going? Come on, Chia. Come on, Chia. I'm going, excuse me, what does that mean? Come on, Chia. Come on, Chia. And I'm thinking, I don't know what that means. Where are we going? And I had these visions of just a few months before in my office saying, God, take me home to be with you. <laughs> And at that moment, I said, God, I was just joking. <laughs> they took us different directions to get us away from being followed by secret. brought us to the same location. And at that location, I found these 125 underground church pastors. I met one man who had spent 15 years in hard labor camps because of his faith in Christ. found another man who had spent nine years in hard labor camp the head of all the Assemblies of God, the General Superintendent of the Assemblies of God of Vietnam, had spent nine years in prison. The Christian Missionary Alliance pastor had spent quite a few years in solitary confinement. All these great heroes, and now all of a sudden they pick on me and says, they had no furniture, and they said, the Lord has answered our prayer. You've come from the outside. That's been our prayer. I said, no, no, no. You need to preach to me. I come from Laodicea. You're the ones that need to be preaching to me. I was so humbled by that. They said, no, and you must speak the word of the Lord. Don't give us something that is sugar-coated. Give us something that God has spoken. If we like it or not, we want to hear it. 
I couldn't speak. I said, no, you need to minister to me. So all I knew to do was take a basin of water and wash all their feet for the next few hours. And when we were finished, they came and washed my feet and said, we may never be able to fulfill the Great Commission to go make disciples of nations. But every time you feel like you want to quit or get disappointed or discouraged, we ask you to consider that we can't go, you can, and you would be our representative. And every time in the future where I feel like quitting, I remember my brothers and sisters in that meeting. A few years ago, I was speaking at the Asian, North American Asian Task Force in California. I was at a big conference room in, in a hotel. I'm getting ready to speak. In the back of the room, I hear a man say, we love this man, we love this man. He's walking his way up and going, my goodness, what's going on here? And this Vietnamese, a senior Vietnamese man comes up and says, I do not know his name, but the day after I after 15 years, I came to a secret meeting, and you washed my feet. I do not remember your name, but we call you the man who washes feet. Because they couldn't, they all called me Mr. Duck. They couldn't say Doug. Mr. Doe, Dark Stranger, I mean, all kinds of things. They said, we cannot remember how to say your name, but you are the man who washes feet. Two years ago, I was speaking at a gathering of Vietnamese leaders all over the world came to Houston at the Vietnamese Baptist Church, and the pastor there is one of my spiritual sons. And the interpreter gets up, and he can't speak. He's weeping. And I'm thinking, what's wrong? What's wrong? You're the man who washes feet. He had been also a man who had been in prison for many years in Vietnam, and that day on 1990, January 2nd, 1990, was in that meeting. And he could not speak to interpret for me because he realized who I was. At that moment, a bunch of young pastors come up that had come from Vietnam. He says, we've never met you, but we've heard the legend of the man who washes feet. Now, let me just say something to you about trust. You may wonder if you have ability, you're smart enough, you have anything to offer God. But the issue is, it's not about how smart we are, what we have to offer. It's about our availability, as I shared last night. And there are moments and seasons and times that might seem in insignificant to you, but have perpetual implications. On July 4th, 1776, King George III said, nothing of significance has happened in the world today. He wasn't moved by the Declaration of Independence. But what seemed to be a very insignificant moment in the eyes of others became one of the greatest moments in the world. And we're here because of, as a result of that. You're being here today at not just a name called Antioch again. You might think that you being here is, okay, there's 100, 200, 300 people have been here. Uh, how many have been here? Lord, are we really making a difference? You may think this is not significant in, the, in light of all that's going on around the world, but never take for granted those small beginnings, those little flickers of flames that come together and the Spirit of God breathes upon and turns it into a huge flame. Never take your life or your gathering together in the name of the Lord as insignificant. In light of what God has done in the past here in 1790-something, I think 1797, 
Samuel Adams, not the beer, but Samuel Adams, who was one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, part of the uh, Continental Congress, became, after he got out of the Continental Congress and after serving in other ways, became the governor of Massachusetts at the age of 74, just a few years before he passed away. And at that time, he made a declaration and he called the legislature of Massachusetts together and they all were in agreement to call a day of fasting and prayer and solemn assembly for Massachusetts and to pray for the other states of the nation. It didn't just happen in August 6th in Houston, Texas with governor of Texas calling and trumpeting a, a solemn assembly. That wasn't the first time. One of the earliest times when Samuel Adams, your governor, or the governor of Massachusetts called one. It wasn't a big argument back then. It wasn't the atheists coming against it. And when the atheists argue with us doing the solemn assembly in Houston at Reliance Stadium, uh, it's interesting to me. I go, why would you protest a prayer meeting if you don't believe in God? Why are you worried about prayer? As I said last night, it wasn't about that. They were mad they were praying to Jesus. And I actually told them, I said, you're welcome to come, by the way. And so the head of the atheists, the uh, uh, night before the solemn assembly we had at Reliance Stadium, said, well, we've registered. I go, well, that's wonderful. You come on in. If you, if you come in and you're civil, man, be our guest. Because when the corporate body of Christ gets together and they're worshiping God in God's corporate presence, you're going to be beneficiaries of it. You're going to love it. Looked at me like, you want us to come? Yeah, come on in. Just be civil because you're going to be surprised at the presence of God. And if anybody gives you a hard time for being an atheist, you come tell me and I'll take care of it. Even Rolling Stone magazine came up that day and said, this isn't what we thought. Is this like a new movement? I said, no, this is what Christians do. <laughs> they end up spending a few hours with uh, Mike Bickle over in Kansas City after that. They spent a couple hours the next day after the response to, with Jim Garlow from California at a church in Houston. And I mean, God is sowing seed everywhere. If we just make ourselves available, trust Him that even in our seeming insignificance, God is doing a work in and through us. Amen? And what we're doing here this weekend is not something to take lightly. I believe God's doing something far beyond the human eye. And even as you had a revelation of the work of the cross, power of the resurrection, your Saul moment, Jesus is saying to you, I've got a purpose for you of the things you've seen and have not seen. You're going to be my minister of reconciliation, and you're going to be my witness who rescues lives and saves souls. How do I do that, God? Just relax. It's all up to him. All we can do is make ourselves available and walk in simple obedience every day, right? It's all about His grace upon our lives. If we make ourselves and avail ourselves to Him, He will give us ability. Second Timothy 2.2 says, Give me the faithful that I can make them able. He's not looking for our ability first. He's looking for our availability that He can make us and equip us and make us able to fulfill what He wants us to do. Here's another one of my books that's out of print that I want to give away called Somebody Cares, A True Witness Rescues Lives. It kind of talks about how we got started 30 years ago and testimonies like the one I shared last night about the person who we paid his light bill and his um, rent the month before and he was always arguing with me and called me on radio state programs, called me a bigot and hate monger and saying all you Christians are alike and he, was, he had AIDS and as a result 
he came to Christ because we paid his rent and light bill the month before anonymously, not trying to get credit. But when he found out we did, it opened him up to receive the message of the gospel. And the night before he died of AIDS, he gave his life to the Lord. I think you were the first one that opened your, raised your hand, right? And finally, this book is called Living Life Well, The Spirit of the Ten Commandments. We can't live the Constitution or the Ten Commandments, which is God's Constitution, by the letter of the law. It's out of relationship. It took me 12 years to write this one. I've written another one on building foundations on born to die that we may live about the work of the cross, but I don't have those with me. But Living Life Well is my most recent book, The Spirit of the Ten Commandments, and it really is about looking at the Ten Commandments and putting it back on our foundation, but learning to walk with it in the spirit of the commandments, not in the letter of the law. Amen? Okay. I don't like peddling anything, and I don't believe in selling products. It's resource material. Amen? If it was up to me, I'd give them all away, but I'd get in trouble at my office. So um, go with me to Luke chapter... I've already preached. I just got warmed up. and Go with me to Luke chapter 22. I alluded earlier about Hebrews 12 and the foundations that we need to be building on, but all that is being shaken is being shaken. How many recognize an escalation and an increase of shakings around the world. Hebrews 12 is true that there, all that has been shaken is being shaken. Secondly, we are seeing Romans chapter 8 that the whole earth itself is groaning. I've been involved in doing disaster relief uh, since for many, many years, and we're still working in Haiti, we're in Japan, we're, we're working with the, all the stuff in Joplin and Birmingham, the, the fires in Texas. We're being stretched so thin. I didn't go out to be a disaster relief person, but that's what Christians do, and, and we, have, we are the greatest asset to any local community, from Katrina to Rita to Ike, all these uh, disasters, the church was the greatest responder because God gives us his heart to respond. In fact, during Hurricane Katrina, we were told by government officials that the majority of the rebuilding and the hope that was brought to that region after Katrina was brought through the church, and that's true. The largest amount of income that goes into Haiti before the earthquake and the tragedy that, that they had a couple of years ago was the church. Not tourism, but the church was the greatest uh, giver of income to support things that were going on in Haiti. Orphanages and, and churches and trying to help the community there in their difficult situation, their poverty. So all, even the earth itself is groaning now with birth pangs, and that's accelerating. We're seeing an increase of earthquakes and tornadoes in one 24-hour period. When I was talking to our director of Somebody Cares Birmingham, in a 24-hour period, over 300 tornadoes. Now, I don't know about you, but I look back 200 years, 100 years, 50 years, 20 years, 10 years, 5 years, 2 years, we've seen an acceleration, an escalation of human and natural crises happening, an acceleration of the earth itself groaning with birth pangs. The Chilean earthquake was so deep into the earth, it shook the earth off its normal axis and changed time by a millisecond. That's biblical proportions of what we're seeing in our lifetime. We, we saw the earthquake and the tsunami and all that's happening in Japan shook the earth so deeply, it moved the earth by just, milli, uh, just by a, a fraction, but again, changed the earth off its normal axis. We've seen the most bizarrest of things happening in institutions being shaken, 
the earth groaning. And then we've seen in the last year revolutions all across the Middle East, revolutions around the world. Uh, Psalms 2 calls it the nations are raging. So we see that everything is shaking, the earth is groaning, and the nations rage. Everything. There's a sense of almost overwhelming anarchy. And it can be overwhelming to a generation that's ready to come forth into its prophetic destiny to be what God's called you to be. But yet when you see the news every day and you see how the economy is and you see all the challenges you're going through and what's happening around the world, you go, God, what can I do? And like me, you want to just go curl up in a fetal position, shut the door, turn off the lights and say, goo goo gaga. And it's hard for us to see our prophetic destiny when we're in the midst of what we see going on around us. And we wonder how much influence can we bring in the midst of that. But God has a word for us. He wants us, as A.W. Tozer said, to have a prophetic insight to our generation. Like the sons of Issachar discerning the times. For a, like the times of Esther for a time such as this we've been raised up. That in a moment God could turn things around. We've seen out of modern-day Iran, which is Persia, this declaration to annihilate Israel and annihilate uh, death to America and so on. We see this death decree like, uh, like um, um, Haman put out, and yet we still have the Mordecais and we still have the Esthers. As I shared last night, I'm working with 500 underground churches in Iran and met with their leaders and all across the border of Iran last year. And their passion for God and they're, they're willing to give up their life, go to prison. The stories would astound you of what God has done. So I, I trust that God is still doing something in the middle of all that's happening in Iran. God's doing something what's in the midst of all the intellectualism and New Age movements that are happening in America. God is still doing something because he has a heartbeat through what he calls his church. I believe that the heart of any community is the church. And the only way to, to heal the battle for the moral soul of a nation or a generation is to get the heart alive again. We need defibrillation to get the heart awakened we need a heart awakening individually and corporately, a heart awakening, and then to trust God to say, God, if I take that step into the waters where the waters are fine, I may not know how to tread water. I may not know how to swim, but Lord, I trust you. I have a faith in you, a faith in my belief in Christ, but I trust you to help me as I journey in this destiny you're calling me to. Even as Abraham took a step, and it says he took a step of faith and did not know where he was going. We have to put a trust in God and take that first step, and he will use us, direct us, mold us, refine us. He will take us to become what he wants us to be. Yet, here's what Jesus says as an example, even to his own disciples. In Luke chapter 22, verse 45, Jesus was up in the mountain praying. He came back, and he says, when he rose from prayer, in verse 45 of chapter 22 of Luke, when he rose up from prayer and he came to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. And the inference here is stress, anxiety, overwhelmed of heart. Can you imagine the disciples? They've been journeying with Jesus for three years and thinking, well, we thought this and we thought that and we thought this and boy, things aren't going the way we thought it was going to be. What's really going on? Is he really who he says he really is? Can you imagine all the questions I thought he was going to be the reigning king, going to be our Messiah. And they're overwhelmed with all the fodder and all the news reports going on and swirling around them. 
all the circumstances of the day. And it says they were asleep, they were overwhelmed of heart, they were asleep from sorrow, they were grieved. And here's what Jesus said to them in verse 46, why do you sleep? Rise and pray lest you enter into temptation. Rise and pray lest you enter into temptation. Our temptation is to acquiesce the influence of the kingdom of God that dwells in us because we are, believe the lie and the pressures around us. You'll never amount to be anything. You're nothing. See, every individual, every girl, every man wants to hear, every boy wants to hear, that's my girl, that's my boy. When Jesus was being baptized by John the Baptist, it says that the heavens opened up and a dove, the Holy Spirit came down like a dove and, and landed on Jesus, and you heard a voice from heaven says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Through Christ Jesus, you can hear the Father saying to you, Noah, that's my boy. Because the God the Father spoke to his Son through Jesus, you have access to a relationship with the Heavenly Father, the creator of the heavens and the earth. So no matter what people have ever told you, what's your name? Lindsay. Lindsay. No matter what you've ever heard, we don't have to listen to the lies of the voices of man, but God the Father says, Lindsay, that's my girl. I believe in you. You can do it. Come on, you can do it. What's your name? Allie. Allie. That's my girl, Allie. Come on, I believe in you. See, it doesn't matter what we've been through, what people have said to us. I remember one time when I was in baseball in Japan, I was second base, first string baseball, and, and pulled me up at 10th grade. I was first string, second baseman. There's somebody on first base, and there's a drunk guy in the crowd cursing, my stepdad who was drunk. And all of a sudden, the ball comes to me. I grab the ball. I tag second base. He's out. I threw the ball as hard as I could. I get it to first base and just barely got the double play, but we got a double play. I'm about 180 pounds now, work out a lot in weights, but back then, I was about probably about 108 pounds. So I mean, I threw it as hard as I could, but I got the double play. But instead of my stepdad in the crown saying, that's my boy, all I heard was curse words that I can't even repeat right now because I didn't do it good enough and fast enough. So all my life I was trying to find this place of affirmation and acceptance and approval. I was just wanting to somebody say, that's my boy. Nowadays people say I'm kind of like the Japanese Forrest Gump. I just show up in the picture. I don't even, I'm not, I don't. I'm, I'm not sure exactly how I end up in places I do, in the garbage dump with thousands of people in Indonesia, to the next moment with the president of that country, to the next moment being asked to be in different meetings with government leaders, and I'm, I'm pinching myself, well, what am I doing here? And people, and some of the wealthiest men in the world want me to disciple them, and, and I tell one guy who's one of the wealthiest men in all Asia, well, I'll help disciple you if you promise not to give me any money. He looks at me and goes, why would you say that? In my head, I'm going, why did you say that? <laughs> And I said, because I don't want you to think that our relationship is based on what you can do for me. Because I have something of far more value than what you have on this earth. And as a result, he's brought me into meetings with heads of corporations to share with them my faith in Christ. And again, I'm not smart, it's just available. So I feel like I'm this Japanese Forrest Gump. I just kind of show up in the picture and things happen, you know? You probably saw the movie where, you know, he's running. Run, Forrest, run. Well, now I hear the Lord saying, you can do it, Doug. Run, Dougie, run. And just encouraging me along the way because I needed that affirmation. That's my boy. That's my boy. That's my girl. That's my girl. That's my boy. That's my girl. See, God, through Jesus, is speaking to us and saying, I am giving you the authority 
authority of my kingdom. I'm giving you the inheritance of my kingdom to fulfill the destiny I have for you. But the temptation, like them and the disciples in, in Luke chapter 22, is to listen to the news of the world rather than listen to the voice of God. If God has spoken over you and spoken over me, there's a word in the Hebrew used in Joel 2 and Acts 2. It's found most often in the Old Testament books of the prophets, but also used in Acts chapter 2, indicating visions are where God speaks or communicates with his people and also speaking, confirming his word to us. Prophetic understanding and the dwelling of God's spirit are no longer for a choice few, as was the case in the Old Testament. When only kings and prophets would receive the word of the Lord, God desired all of his children to hear his voice and walk with prophetic insight and vision. Do I need a handheld? God is speaking a prophetic promise over this generation that he has given his authority, influence, and inheritance to. And he's shaking everything so that he can call forth a generation. Let me just turn this off or give it to you. Here, let me give it to you real quick. Thanks, Daryl. Am I on? He's, he's calling a generation with all the shakings, calling a generation out of the desert, out of the wilderness as a corporate prophetic generation saying, prepare the way of the Lord. He's looking for those who maybe others have given up on. The ones that God wants to use the most are the ones the devil tries to stop the most. But thank God there's a prophetic promise. In fact, A.W. Tozier said uh, four decades ago, he says, today we need prophetic preachers, not preachers of prophecy merely, but preachers with a gift of prophecy. We need the gift of discernment again in our pulpits. It's not ability to predict that is what we need, but the anointed eye, the power of spiritual penetration and interpretation, the ability to appraise the religious scene as viewed from God's position and to tell us what is actually going on around us. We need prophetic wisdom. God wants to give us the wisdom of heaven. In fact, it says in Ephesians 3.10, it's his intention to give to us, his people, his manifold wisdom. And the inference of that manifold wisdom is not just a spiritual wisdom, but to give us practical wisdom and authority that comes from his kingdom. Now think about this. We are ambassadors of the king of all kings. And when we receive ambassadors from different countries, we, we, we treat them as dignitaries. How much more valuable are we to God because we're the ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ? We represent him in the marketplace, in, in our schools, in our jobs. We are to represent him in the marketplace. We need his prophetic wisdom and how to be the witness he calls us to be. But there's so many temptations that cause us to want to go to sleep. In Luke 24, I'll give you a paraphrase. In Luke 24... It speaks of when the disciples were on the Emmaus Road. Jesus had already been crucified. He was buried. But a rumor got started by some of the women of, the, uh, of their company that Jesus' body was no longer there. And they started hearing rumors that, in fact, they were talking about angels and stuff. And so they're talking. Jesus appears to the disciples and says, what are you all talking about? And they basically said, well, where have you been all this time? You haven't heard what's been going on, the, the news of the day, the global news of the hour, all the, the, uh, the, the news reports are talking about it all day long about Jesus. 
He goes, well, tell me about it. So they begin to share with Jesus about Jesus. They didn't recognize him. And here's why. Go then to Luke chapter 24. In verse 17, Jesus says, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and you are sad? In other words, he saw them in a sad countenance. They go, where have you been? And then it says here, the question here, because in verse 20, how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him, Jesus, to be condemned to death and crucified him, Jesus. And it says in verse 21, here's, here's the real issue here. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. The question is, the point is, we were hoping. In other words, they had their own perception, their own expectation, or their own idea. We were hoping that he would be this, 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 and this in our lives. And sometimes we come to that very Emmaus road in our own lives in that journey of trust. Well, Lord, I was really hoping that you'd bring me a wife or bring me a husband first. Or I was really hoping that you'd get me this job first. Or God, I was really hoping that you'd do this. God, I was kind of wishing you would answer my prayer this way. We have all these personal expectations, and we say the same thing at that moment of decision, but we were hoping that. And then when it says he was about to leave them, that there's something inside of them was stirring, and they says, why don't you abide with us, stay with us? And that abide, when they said abide with us, that's an invitation. When we come from that place of putting aside our own expectations and our own questions and saying, Lord, I trust you. I ask you to abide with me. I need your presence. Would you stay with me? And that invitation for his presence, the first thing was invitation. The second thing was they began to have communion together. And after communion came revelation. When you invite his abiding presence begin to commune with God, revelation begins to come. Their eyes were opened, and now they have a new expectation. And they no longer were sad, but they became full of joy and were glad because they had a different expectation, not in self, but an expectation and a hope that was now in Christ. And ultimately, a transformation came in Acts 2, a modern-day transforming revival. I've been a part of a movement of putting out documentaries and films on transformations around the world since 1999. In 1999, we knew of four cities around the world experiencing modern-day transformation. Not just a revival service in a building, but where God was moving to touch all the areas of the culture. When I got off the board last year, in a little over 10 years of being on that board, we went from four that we knew of around the world to over 1,000 that we could even keep up with. You think with the growth groaning and institutions shaking and nations raging at an escalated rate that God's not up to something too? Because all we do is watch what we see in the negative, but God's been up to something. In the middle of all that, God's moving quickly. God's calling forth His people to say, trust me, do I, is there anybody I can send? Who can I send? And all He's saying is, waiting for someone to say, here I am, Lord, use me. And Isaiah said, but I'm an un a man of unclean lips. I'm not worthy, oh God. When you're in the presence of a triune holy God, yes, you're not worthy. But my prayer, every, I have two prayer times every morning. And, but in my prayer time, I say, Lord, I said, I know that I'm nothing without you. There is nothing without you. 
I don't have a clue what I'm doing with my life, but Lord, I will make myself available to you again today. My first prayer time is I talk to the Father. I don't ask Him for anything. I thank Him for everything. I wake up in horizontal in bed. The first thing in my mind is when I wake up, I want to thank you, Father, for loving me. Thank you for your Father's embrace because I didn't understand what a father was in the world. But, Lord, I thank you that you're a father. And you've given me an inheritance. You're full of mercy and compassion. Father, you, every good and perfect gift comes from you. I just thank him, thank him, thank him. I don't ask him for nothing. Just thank him. I get up, do my thing, take my shower, brush my teeth. The first time that week, no, I brush my teeth every day, at least twice. And, um, and then I, after I'm all done, have my devotion, then I take what I call knee time. And need time was where I come before the Lord and say, God, here's my day. I need your direction. Would you be glorified in all that I do say and think today? Lord, it's a privilege and an honor to serve you. I know I'm nothing without you, but it's a privilege and honor to serve you. And I thank you that, that when others have given up on me, you gave me a purpose beyond myself. You've put me in a place of, of kingdom influence that I could have never done. I know I'm not worthy, but Lord, I know that you are. I give him the petitions of the day, and I set out on my day. See, God wants us to get past our personal expectations, put our expectations back on him. Amen? All is being shaken. The earth is groaning. The nations rage. But God is doing something so significant, so deep in the middle of it all. Darkness and light are in contention. And God's looking to and fro for those he can trust that will put their trust in Him, that He can empower them with the power of the Holy Spirit, the temples of the Holy Spirit, as we talked about last night. Ephesians 3.20 says, Then, when you understand that revelation, now to Him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above what we ask or think according to the power that works where? In us. Why? Because it's not about us anymore. It's about stewardship of the authority of heaven. There are things and stories I've come across that I, I, can't, I can't believe God would do the things he's done. I was just talking to, this morning to Crystal and telling her a story of, of last year, a friend of mine who has orphanages that he started in Vietnam. And he was sitting in a coffee shop. And some Vietnamese pastors in their 20s, early 20s, came up and said, I know America's a big place, but do you know somebody named Doug Stringer? He says, well, as a matter of fact, I do. Wow. We've never met him, but we've got old cassette tapes and old videos on VHS videos that we play over and over. Our whole church movement of churches we've pioneered came from those cassettes and videos. God, take me home to be with you. I'm not worthy. I don't want to preach. January 2nd, 1990, the man who washes feet, not because of me, but because the one who really washes our feet, I was just doing by his example. And today there's churches all across that country and that region that were birthed because of my little simple obedience, not because I was smart. I want to go back and find what those tapes were to find out they're really doing church right. See, God is not looking for your great ability. He's looking for your availability. The weekend of 9-11, 10-year anniversary, I was asked to write some articles from some magazines on 10 years in retrospect of 9-11. I talked about all the heroes that emerged. I talked about everyday heroes. But I also talked about how who would have thought in 10 years' time we'd be where we are today. Just 
a little over 10 years ago now, we would have never thought life would be the way it is today. Let me close with a couple quotes. Did America really change after 9-11? Yes. Did the church change? It went back to business as usual. I think Christians failed to heed a wake-up call and kept pushing our snooze buttons. Marriages continue to fall apart all around us, leaving behind a broken generation of young people, while government leaders in New York and California openly celebrate the legalization of same-sex marriages. Church leaders have fallen to adultery or immorality and pornography. Those who oppose any expression of Christianity continue to harass Christian educators with frivolous lawsuits. Atheist groups even protested the response prayer meeting held in Houston in August, attempting to prohibit the governor and other government officials from attending. God help us, we cried in 2001. You saw the pictures in the news clips, people crying, God help us. We saw the desperation and the gruesomeness, and, the, and it was heartrending of what we saw. It was overwhelming of heart. And yet 10 years later, after we cried, God help us, but on September 11, 2011, 10 years later, his name will not even be mentioned at Ground Zero. The late theology professor Harold O.J. Brown wrote in 2005, the distinctiveness of marriage has been abolished. Prayer and Bible reading in schools has been stamped out. The mother's womb has become the most dangerous place for a baby. The rights, but not the duties, of fathers and parents of minor girls have been voided. Divorce has become easier than marrying. The Ten Commandments have been banned from public view. And now the natural distinction between male and female is being abolished. The Pledge of Allegiance is for, for, for forbidden. The Boy Scouts are under attack, and Christmas carols are banned. Pornography is everywhere. The structure of American society is being demolished brick by brick. No institution is exempt from God's shaking, not our government or the economy or even the church. Before his 1978 Harvard commencement address, Russian exile Alexander Sholzentsin was the daring, darling of the American liberal intellectuals. When he finished, he was a pariah. They were expecting a grateful message, worshipful of their great society. Instead, he rebuked them for their cowardice, legalism, superficiality, herd instinct, materialism, humanism, and flirtation with socialism. And here's what he said. See, they were not all prepared for the Russians' prophetic words such as those that followed 1978 is when he said this at Harvard. This tilt of freedom toward evil has come about gradually, but it evidently stems from a humanistic and benevolent concept according to which man is the master of this world, does not bear any evil within himself, and all the defects of life are caused by misguided social systems, which must therefore be corrected. The West has finally achieved the rights of man and even to excess, but man's sense of responsibility to God and society has grown dimmer and dimmer. He goes on to say, socialism of any type and shade leads to a total destruction of the human spirit and to a leveling of mankind into death. If humanism, it, humanism, started mod, not modern Western civilization on the dangerous trend of worshiping man and his material needs. He says, I'm referring to the calamity of an autonomous, irreligious, humanistic consciousness. It has made man the measure of all things on earth. Imperfect man, imperfect man, 
who is never free of pride, self-interest, envy, vanity, and dozens of other defects. Humanism, which has lost its Christian heritage, cannot prevail in this competition. We have placed too much hope in politics and social reforms, only to find out that we were being deprived of our most precious possession, our spiritual life. In 1978, he said these words, and we don't take to heart what we hear from these Vietnamese leaders who have been imprisoned under that kind of rule. We don't listen to these who have been freed from communism and socialism, imprisoned for their faith. We don't heed them. These were prophetic voices, the A.W. Tozers of our life, the Charles Finney 140 years ago talking about the days in which we live in greater measure now than even when he first wrote them or spoke them. All these voices, prophetic voices of times past, are speaking loudly from the grave to us today. But are we listening? Just 10 years ago, who would have thought we'd be where we are today? My father and my grandfather are both buried in Veterans Memorial Cemetery in Houston, Texas, my father and my stepfather both died of military-related lung cancers. My biological father, as you know, was a Navy SEAL Special Forces. My stepfather was a career hospital corpsman in the U.S. military, Navy. But on July 4th of this year, pastors and myself had to go to the cemetery, Veterans Memorial Cemetery in Houston, because the director of the Veterans Memorial Cemetery has told pastors they can no longer say Jesus the women's auxiliary can no longer send cards to the, to the families that have lost their loved one and say, God bless you. The color guard can no longer fold up the flag and hand the flag to the, person, the, the, the family of the lost one and say, God bless you, because they're saying it's a separation of church and state. And yet I looked around the thousands of graves and all the crosses and some Buddhists, and some Muslims, and the reason the Buddhists and the Muslims and others can have the freedoms they have here in this country is because of the foundations that were laid, the sacrifices that were made, and the price that was paid for those freedoms. There's a cost for freedom. There was a cost for the liberties and the freedoms that you and I have today to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. 2,000 years ago, the greatest blood donor that ever lived, blood donors gave their blood after 9-11, but the greatest blood donor that ever lived was Jesus who gave his blood that we might live. The greatest fireman or rescue worker that ever lived in all of creation, all of eternity, was Jesus Christ who rescued us from hell's flames. So how much more then should we be able to call upon his name in freedom? So on July 4th of this year, we had to go and, and protest civil disobedience in a very respectful way and say we totally disagree with this unilateral decision by one person to tell us we can no longer, where the majority of people being buried here. We're not asking the Muslims to change the style of funeral they do or the Buddhists, but the majority of people in this gravesite here were people who had Christian funerals who gave their lives for the freedoms and liberties we have today. And you're telling us we cannot talk about Jesus? We cannot say, God bless you? Absolutely enough is enough. I said last night, in, every, in times and seasons and generations, God is calling forth courageous young voices who rise against the crowd, the Wilberforces of our day to stamp out 
slavery, to stamp out shedding of innocent blood, to stamp out injustices. And it's oftentimes going against the grain of the day, but to stand in love, in righteousness for the truth. In every generation, God is looking for a young man, a young woman. When I first went to Vietnam in 1990, most of the churches at that time, when their pastors were being arrested, putting in prison, teenagers and young teens and, and, and early 20s were starting three to five churches a week because the more they tried to arrest their pastors, the more they said, we're going to go take the torch. God is looking across this place today and asking the question, do you trust me? Do you trust me that in a world of fodder, in a world swirling with negativity, in a world full of difficulties, that you will trust me that I will lead you into a place of triumph and victory? 2 Corinthians 2.14 says it great. God always leads us to triumph. God always leads us to triumph in the midst of difficult economic challenges, in the midst of a world in shakings. God wants to look for a people, a young people, a young generation says, we'll stand up and set a banner high. And let me close with this story out of 2 Kings 4 for you as an encouragement. But I have nothing to offer. I don't have enough resources or money. What can I do? There was a woman who was a, a widow of a preacher in 2 Kings 4 about to lose her children, to lose her home, become homeless the next day. She comes to Elisha, God's representative, and says, I'm the wife, the widow of one of the sons of the prophets, a preacher man. I can't pay my bills. I have, they're going to take my children to be indentured slaves and servants to pay off my bills, and then I'm losing my home. I'm going to be homeless tomorrow. And Elisha says to her, well, what do you have? And her first comment was, I have nothing. Then she thought about, I have nothing but a small jar of oil. He goes, well, take your nothing but your jar of oil and take every empty vessel and pour it into every empty vessel. And then go ask your neighbors to just borrow. Don't ask them for money. Ask them for their empty vessels. Take their empty vessels and pour into those until all the empty vessels are filled. Then go sell the oil, keep your house, pay off your debtors, keep your house, keep your kids, and on the rest, live. And the implication was, with more than enough the rest of your life. Out of her, nothing was more than enough. That's how God works. There was another woman who was a woman of nobility, a notable woman, who had more than enough. And she would tell her husband, Elisha comes by and I know he's going on this journey. Can we let him borrow the upper room of our house as a place of rest on his journey? And so Elisha says to Gehazi, his servant, he goes, Gehazi, I mean, he says, he goes, she has been so kind to us, what can we do for her? So he asks the woman, the notable woman of nobility, and says, you've been so good to, to, um, to Elisha, what can we do for you? And her first comment was, I don't need anything. Her exact words, I'm amongst my people. In other words, I have need of nothing. But yet Elisha seeks the Lord on her behalf for what she did not even ask for. Today, if we put our trust in Him, I wonder to rise up above the crowd of all the chaos around us and be used by God as part of that prophetic generation. God is saying to some, you may think you have nothing, 
but I'm going to give you more than enough. See, there's a lot of empty vessels on your campus. There's a lot of empty vessels around Boston. Everywhere you go, there's empty vessels that need that little bit of oil you got because the oil of God in you is more than enough. And the more you give yourself away, the more God replenishes it. A couple years ago, I was down to the wire. We needed $250,000 just to keep our ministry going on around the world. I'm not, I don't like peddling. I don't like cold calling. I don't like groveling. I'm more like the George Mueller type. So I said, God, if you've got to shut it down, we're shutting it down because I'm not letting the machine run me. We've got to trust you, God. I got a phone call from a drug addict that I took off the streets in 1987 or 88. Calls me up says, Doug, the Lord woke me up. And as you know... I thank God every day for your life because back then I, I, was, I dropped out of college with one semester to graduate, got on drugs and ecstasy and all these other drugs. I was homeless. You took me off the streets, got me into a drug rehab, became my friend, worked with me. Today I'm married and my children and wife have never seen me on drugs or alcohol, and I'm a very wealthy man. The Lord told me to send you $100,000. Somebody else calls me from a Muslim country. His wife had just died, and I dedicated one of my books to his, his late wife. And, and uh, Doug, my, my children and I are in Spain. We're, um, uh, you know, we're, they're from a Muslim country. We're in Spain right now, uh, uh, taking some time as a vacation and grieving over the loss of Rose. And, and uh, the Lord just woke us up and said, we're supposed to send you $100,000. A single-parent mom walks in and gives 5000 A film producer that asked me to help minister to her calls me from her ranch in another country and says, I just read your book, Who's Your Daddy Now? I Can't Stop Crying, and says, Can I, I'd like to send you 25000 And within 10 days, over 250000 came in that we were put out around the world to the different ministries we're involved in. See, out of nothing in a depressed economy, out of nothing, if we just keep pouring ourselves out, we don't stop giving. Give of who we are because of Christ in us, and God will always replenish your vessel and give you more than enough. And then there's some of you here today saying, you know, I'm doing okay. But because you've given that special place in your heart, that second mile in your heart, God is saying to you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something for you that you haven't even asked for. The Lord just saying, you know, that's my girl. I just want to bless you because I just feel like blessing you. That's my boy. That's my son. I just want to bless you just because I feel like blessing you because I can trust you with my stewardship. Some of you today are saying, well, 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 God, how can you use me? God says, you don't worry about that. You make yourself available. You trust me, and I'm going to pour my spirit into you, and I'm going to work through you, and there's going to be multiplication, and you're going to see with your eyes all that you were praying for in Boston, in Massachusetts, in America, in your generation. Take that step of faith and trust. Faith in God, trust in God to do what he says he can do in your life. And I'm going to declare over some of you today that within the next 72 hours, God is going to do something you haven't even asked for, and you're going to just go, oh, my goodness. He's going to just surprise you. He's going to do something for you. There's been things you've been sowing in your heart and prayer and believing for. There are many times you've given to other people, helped other people, and you've had need in your own life. And God's saying within the next 72 hours, I'm going to do something for you. You're going to look back and go, whoa, God, that's awesome. That's sweet, yeah. I would say awesome. That was, you know, we have different words in my generation. But, but God's going to do something for you. There are some of you in this room today that within the next 72 hours, 
you're going to start seeing some things happening because you have now put a trust in him. You have an expectation of him, not saying, oh, I was hoping that, but you're saying, my expectation is in you. My hope is in you. God, I trust you. You've already given me the faith of a mustard seed to move mountains, but God, I trust you to be who you say you are. And I hear you saying to me, that's my boy, that's my girl. And God, I want to be used by, here I am, Lord, use me. Use me, Lord. Pour me out into the empty vessels. Pour me out into those that are around me. And God, I trust you will give me more than enough, and there'll be a multiplication. Because this is a year of multiplication in the midst of difficulties. And with the next 72 hours, you're going to see certain things happen in your personal life, in your families, the things you've been praying for. You're going to see God show up and you go, this was not a moment of insignificance. This was a significant weekend where, God, you began to give me life again. You gave me hope again. You gave me expectation that was bigger than I could ever comprehend again. And God, this isn't just words we've been saying and declaring Antioch again. We believe that another great awakening shall come. And it shall come from our generation. It shall come right here in what many parts of the world says is the most liberal place of the world. But we declare that, that that's what the world says, but we know who God is and who God is in His people. There'll be a great youth revival and movement that will touch the nations of the world from this very place right through you. Stand with me. I'm not finished, I just quit. Do you trust him? It doesn't matter what your earthly relationships have been like, but do you trust him today? Just raise a hand towards heaven and pray with me like you really mean it. Say, Lord Jesus. Come on, do it like you mean it. Lord Jesus, my hope is in you. My trust is in you. Do whatever you need to do to change my mind, change my thinking, change my heart, awaken my heart to believe you, to do a work in me and a work through me. I want to be a part of the destiny you've called me to, a purpose beyond myself and with my eyes to see an outpouring of your spirit across this region across this nation and around this world. I take a step of faith and put my trust in you. Do whatever you need to do, Jesus. Whatever you need to do to help me to become what you want me to become. Now pray this with me. Say, Jesus, remove from my life the things that hinder me, the sins that have been in the way, the compromises, anything that is not pleasing to you. Remove them, Lord, because my hope is in you. In Jesus' name. Let's begin to worship him right now and thank him.